listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. This morning, we turn again to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. So if you would go ahead and find that in your Bibles. We will be reading verses 14 through 24 in just a few moments. But before we do that, I, I just... Do you know what the subject of the sermon is today? It's Jesus. You got it. Uh, This morning, we are going to zero in, not just on Jesus, but on Jesus' teaching. Uh, Jesus' teaching was controversial in His days in many quarters of the society. Uh, There are a number of reasons for this. He often was calling into question the religious power structures in His day, and He was certainly challenging those who were in charge of those religious power structures. And they, they didn't like being challenged. Uh, Jesus was at the same time, um, His teaching was, was light and life. It was also hard and convicting. And the passage we look at today isn't so much focused on the content of Jesus' teaching as much as it is focused on the context for what Jesus taught. So remember that as we process through this. As we move through this passage I just pray that our hearts would be drawn afresh to Christ. And the glory that we find in His words and in His teaching. So, beginning in verse 14 of John chapter 7, let me read as you follow along. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. May we hear it and heed it. Let's pray. Father, we again open our hearts to you. 
It is a remarkable thing that you continue to speak to your people through your word and by your spirit. We are grateful this morning that we have this text because you intend for us to hear it. You intend for us to to take it to heart. So Lord, help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Lord, we are listening. We pray that you would address our lives. Lord, I pray for the power of the Spirit this morning to enable me to speak your word clearly and plainly. That lives might be changed as your Spirit works. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In these 11 verses... There are four aspects of Jesus' teaching that we're going to look at this morning. Four aspects of Jesus' teaching. The first aspect of Jesus' teaching is this. The authority of Jesus' teaching. The authority of Jesus' teaching. That's verses 14 through 16. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. Now, Jesus is known, we're seeing this. He does this as part of what he does. He goes into a town, he goes into the temple uh, or the synagogue, and he begins teaching. And so this is what Jesus is doing. Remember, this is the Feast of Booths. Or the Feast of Tabernacle. That's the context. That's what's happening. That's the time of year that it is for the nation of Israel where they're celebrating this. So Jesus goes to the the festival and about the middle of the feast, he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And the Jews marveled. They marveled at him saying, how is it that this man has learning? I mean, when he's never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but His who sent me. Verses 1-13 through tells us that Jesus originally didn't want to go up to Jerusalem. He was actually being tempted or taunted by His brothers uh, that He needed, if He really was the Messiah, if He really was who He said He was, He needed to go to Jerusalem during this this holy feast and He needed to, to demonstrate that He was the Messiah. He needed to do some miraculous things. He needed to do some, some spectacular things that would draw people to Himself. And so basically His brothers were telling Him that not because they believed Him, because the verse says, it, the passage says they didn't believe in Him, but it was more of this taunting thing that He was doing towards them, that they were doing towards Him. Jesus said, I'm not going to Jerusalem to do that. I'm not going to do that. He didn't want to go to cause a stir. He didn't want to gather a crowd. He wasn't interested in gaining popularity. He didn't want to go because he also knew there was a plot against his life. He also knew that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were intent on killing him. So eventually, he does decide to go to Jerusalem. But he does it by himself. He does it privately. He doesn't go with anyone else. When he gets there, we are said that during the middle of the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And the people were amazed at what Jesus was saying. They were marveling at it. It was, it was an astonishing thing that, that they were hearing. It was just like, wow, they can't believe what they're hearing. They were astonishing, astonished at what Jesus was saying because they knew he had no training. He didn't study under anyone. They didn't know where his understanding, they didn't know where his wisdom, they didn't know where his insights were coming from into the scriptures. See, part of the religious system of his day was that new teachers or rabbis are lawyers, those who studied the law. 
they were to actually to sit under the tutelage of someone else, of some other teacher where they would be tutored. Um, and you would become identified with your teacher. I'm of, uh, you know, this person's house. I, I studied under this person. And that gave you credibility. That gave you some, even some authority among the people. But Jesus had none of that. Jesus' authority to teach was not from human agency. He, his teaching came from the one who sent him. Well, who sent him? Obviously, God the Father sent Jesus the Son. Jesus' teaching wasn't based on personal training. It wasn't based on the diplomas he had, he, had, he, had, he had gathered. It wasn't based just on some neat insights he had. Jesus' teaching was the word and truth of God, the one who sent him. Verse 16 tells us basically the authority of, what, of his teaching. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus models for us something for our teaching and for our preaching today. Um, our teaching and our preaching had at its very basic must be that it is not mine, but it is Him who sent me. I think the temptation today is to preach or to teach out of things that happened in the week or the book that was read or, or some kind of events that took place. Insights that were gained from learning here or hearing this here and then adding verses to it here and there to make it sound like it, it's from the Bible. But really it's all about what was in us and what we wanted to say instead of letting the Word of God say what it says. And when we do that, when we teach in that kind of way, or when we preach in that kind of way, the teaching is ours. It is out of self. And those things, just, you know, to be honest, those things, the, the events, the illustrations, the insights, the learning that we have, they can be helpful and useful in teaching and preaching, but only as they help us teach and preach what it is that God's Word actually says. The Word does not serve our events. It does not serve our happenings. It does not serve our illustrations. It does not serve our learning. It does not serve our insights. Those things are meant to come from and ultimately point to the Word of God. When we teach or we preach, we are explaining and applying the Word of God. It's just that simple. We're trying to explain what the Bible actually says. And this is the authority that Jesus carried with him. He was saying, what I'm telling you, I received from the Father. And when we stand before you, the, the power behind what we're saying is not how charismatic we may be in our personality. It, it may not be in our skill to, to be orators. It is in, are we faithfully telling you what God said? And again, I, I think it's important. Illustrations and, and events and other, they can be part of that and they should be helpful to helping us understand what it is that the one who sent us told us to say. What is recorded for us. When we teach or we preach, we are explaining and applying God's Word. This is why our preaching is what is called exegetical. And why we preach mainly through books of the Bible. When I first started in ministry many years ago, I did more topical things. 
And it, it, it was like, and, and Pastor Phil and I have talked about this. That's just like, after about six months, you're just done. You're depleted. Trying to come up with a topic. And so you end up really do drawing from a book you read or you draw, because it's just so hard to do that. Now, there are places, there, there, there's a place, I should say, for topical sermons, as long as it's done in an exegetical way from a, from a passage of Scripture. But we mainly, the main diet in our church is not topical preaching, it's preaching through books of the Bible where we explain what this passage says and we try to apply it as best we can. That's the main diet of the Word of God in this church, and that's what we want to keep to. There are times where the Lord impresses upon us we need to deal with something, and so we might deal with the passage, the kind of what we call a standalone thing, but even the standalone must be exegetical. It must come from what the Word says and be powerful in its application of what is written there. So I hope that makes sense to you, to kind of give you a context for how we think about the preaching and teaching of God's Word. We do this because Scripture is God's holy word, and only God has the right, and only God has the credentials to speak authoritatively to all matters of life and faith. Only God has that. And He has graciously recorded us for, for us this word. And so we spend time trying to understand. I think one of the, 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 the conclusions that sometimes people get to here can come to here is that they think that that theological or pastoral training isn't necessary. Well, number one, Jesus was God who came in the flesh, so he kind of has a leg up on a lot of us from the beginning. But we need to understand, if we want to become like Jesus and we want to help others become like Jesus, theological training is a wonderful means of grace. And it's not to be looked down upon. In too many circles, it's like, if you get theological training and pastoral training, and I think those things have to go hand in hand, not just an academic, but a, but a, but a practical understanding. So I, it's important that we understand that, yes, we are to go to school. We need to learn the original languages. We need to engage in systematic theological thought. We need to understand church history. So much of what happens is because people don't understand what came before. If they would just look at the saints who came before us, what they said, what they wrote, we would be so much further down the road. But we think we've got to reinvent the will in every generation. And it just, it just it countermines what, what, what it is that God is trying to do so often. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Good theological training, good pastoral training helps you to do just that, to rightly handle the word of truth. We get theological training so that we might be able to give the Word of God to, to explain it well in context and to apply it well. All this training is just for that, so that we might faithfully, powerfully, and humbly proclaim, what I teach is not mine, but His who sent me. God uses wise men and women who have gone before us to help us understand the Word and apply it with wisdom. And this really is talking about church history. This goes back to basically the Reformation. And I would say even before that, <laughs> all the way to the, to, to the New Testament, to God's Word. 
But there is one pivotal, and you've probably heard of this. It's, 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 a, very, it's a very famous moment in church history. Uh, and it concerned the very approach and understanding of God's Word and what was authoritative and what was finally binding on all matters of life and faith. At this critical moment in the Reformation movement, Martin Luther is called before the Holy Roman Emperor to give an account for his writings and for his teachings. Luther hoped, and I think he kind of thought, he was going to get an opportunity to talk about his teachings on justification and to engage in some healthy dialogue with people, but instead it was a theological ambush. They were just trying to expose him and declare him a heretic and get rid of him. So here's what happened on that incredible day. Luther was called before the, the Holy Roman Emperor, as well as there were o- over 200 other people of nobility that were in this great hall. And he was made to wait all day until they called him to come and stand before the emperor. And what they did was they made him walk from one end of the hall to the other end of the hall that was lined with all this nobility in their, in their, their royal garb. It was, it, was just, it was an intimidating situation. And here comes this monk in his habit and his, just his, his basic monk's clothing. And he's made to march through all of that to the other end of the hall. And at the other end of the hall is the emperor. And in front of the emperor is a table with the writings of Martin Luther. And when he gets there, there is a man by Johannes Eck who was standing next to that table. And when he gets there, Johannes Eck asks him, are these your writings? Did you write these books, these pamphlets? Martin Luther asked, well, I need, the, I need to know what's on this table, so would you read the title of each one? So after they read the title of each one, he said, yes, I wrote all of those. He acknowledged that. Immediately, Eck asked him to recant their books and to recant the teachings. To recant means just to take back, to retract. That's what he's talking about here. He was asking Luther to recant He was asking him to admit that what he had written in these books, what he had written in these pamphlets, that he was wrong and that he no longer believed these things to be true. You know what happened next? Luther asked for a day to think about it. It was granted him, so he marches out, comes back the next day, the same situation, comes through this hallway, comes back to the table, all the glitz and the glamour that surrounds him, how intimidating the whole situation was meant to be on this humble monk. And he stood before that table with all of his readings, all of his writings. Eck asked him again, are these yours? He says, yes, these are mine. He asked him, do you recant? And this was his response. If then I am reputed and convicted by testimonies of Scripture or by clear reason since I believe neither the popes nor the councils by themselves, for it is clear they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot nor do I want to retract anything. Here I stand. May God help me. He thrust his fists up in the air, turned around, and walked out the hall. Luther's conscience was captive to the Word of God. Because he was competent. It wasn't his, it was the one who sent him. 
It was binding on him. And therefore what he wrote and taught was in accord with that word. He did not take his stand based on who taught him or what school he went to or how many diplomas, which he had a number of diplomas at that time. He didn't take a stand based on the diplomas that hung on his wall or the insights into life. He took his stand on God's plain teaching in the word of God. So Luther would echo Jesus' statement, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. May that always be the core and foundation and drive behind all that is preached and all that is taught in this church. May our claim to power not be our brilliant insights or ability to move people, but in plainly explaining and powerfully applying God's word. That's what we want to do. We pray that God would grant us to do that. Here we stand. May God help us. Second aspect of Jesus' teaching. The essential key to understanding Jesus. Let's look at the essential key to understanding Jesus' teaching. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Listen, the essential key to understanding Jesus' teaching and therefore God's word is a willingness to obey it. The key to recognizing the truth of Jesus' teaching is a willingness to do God's will. Those who seek to do God's will will know God's truth when it is preached. Those desiring to do God's will will receive Jesus' teaching. In other words, if you desire God's will, you will desire Jesus. There are basically two kinds of people in the Gospels. There are those who sit and listen and drink in and take to heart Jesus' teachings and Jesus' words. Their heart is open. Their wills are surrendered or submitted to some degree. They want to hear what Jesus, they want to do what is being presented to them. The other group of people are those who stand before Jesus, arguing with him, testing him and his knowledge, provoking him, and trying to trap him. See, Jesus here directly connects a person's readiness to do the will of God with his or her capacity to discern the will of God, to discern what is the Word of God. This speaks to us so much. And the issues for our heart, are we more concerned about figuring out all the details of the Word of God, or are we more intent on following the will of God revealed in the Word of God? That our inclination must start with the willingness to say, whatever it says, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to believe. That's the direction I want to go. I always find it just a little amusing when I hear non-Christians, and you hear this more and more, who lecture Christians about what Jesus really said, about what the Bible really means. The Scripture, Jesus, here, clearly precludes them from understanding what He said and why He said it. If a person isn't willing to do God's will, they aren't able to discern and understand who Christ is. I think this again demonstrates why regeneration precedes faith. Why God must make a person alive before they can trust in Him. They then desire, when He makes them alive, they desire to do God's will. 
And in that, we can know that Jesus' words carry the authority of God. You know, a simple prayer for us at this point might be, Lord, make it my heart's pressing desire to do your will so I will know Christ in the power of your word. It is easy when you kind of start going in a more academic direction or you read a lot of books to think that just the accumulation of the knowledge, the accumulation of what you're reading Listen, if the heart isn't right towards the Lord, if it's not bent in submission to the Lord, we end up twisting all those things. And they end up serving our agendas. The third aspect of Jesus' teaching. It is the glory of Jesus' teaching. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. The glory of Jesus' teaching is for God the Father. That's what he's concerned about. He wants glory not for himself. He wants glory for the one who sent him. And Jesus is building the case for why people should trust here. He's building this case for why people should trust what he says. If he were out to promote himself, then that kind of taints, that colors, so to say, everything that he says. Jesus' agenda here isn't personal glory, but the word and will of the Heavenly Father, the one who sent Him. Everything Jesus says, everything Jesus teaches, everything that Jesus does can be understood with that motive. He came to do the will of the Father. He came not on His authority, but on the Father's authority. He came to speak not His words, but the Father's words. He came to do all that, that glory might be brought to the Father. That was His motive. Let me ask you, have you ever bought a car? Now, I need to apologize up front to all, if anyone here is a car salesman or have ever sold cars. I trust that the Lord is working and you're a faithful, true person, if that's you. But when you walk onto a car lot, you know what's going to happen. A salesman or saleswoman is going to come to you and they're going to engage with you. And here is the thing, from the moment that salesman starts talking to you, you can safely assume that everything that comes out of his mouth is meant to get you to buy a car from him, right? We go to a car lot kind of with that understanding. That colors everything that generally comes from their mouth. This guy, he may be a good guy, he may love people, he may generally be honest in his life, but listen, his motive in that moment is to get you to buy a car and to buy it then and to buy it from him. And his, his, his challenges and everything that he's saying is to get you to move you beyond your hesitancies, to get you to move you behind, beyond your objections, to get you to move beyond your, your questions to actually, actually purchasing a car. That's his motives, and we understand that. But it can lead us to be a little bit suspicious. You ask a question, hey, does that window, does that moonroof ever leak? I remember asking that to a car guy. Oh, no, they never leak. I bought the car. Guess what happened? It leaked. (laughs) 
So we, we tend to be a little suspicious of, because of someone's motive, because the truth might, truth might be stretched, or they might, not, they might try to deflect your, your, your thoughts away from that, or to try to even hide the truth at some point. See, Jesus is saying just the opposite here. Because his motive is for the glory of the one who sent him, what he says is free from falsehood. You can trust it. He's not out for his own glory. He's not out for his own good. Matter of fact, we know it's just the opposite, that he's out for suffering. That we know that, that he has his sights ultimately set on the cross. The glory Jesus seeks is not his own, but for the Father. Jesus isn't self-seeking. He, in here, he isn't looking to make a name. And because his motivation is for the glory of God, his words are of God and his words are from God. There is nothing to be suspicious of. He sought the glory of the Father. Our teaching must always seek to glorify God and to point to God. And ultimately to point to God's Son. Our teaching must seek to make much of God the Father and Christ the Son. Our teaching is to promote and exalt God the Father and Christ the Son. But you may be thinking, Rob, wait a minute. Jesus said he wasn't motivated by personal glory. So why are you talking now about glorifying him? He didn't come to seek glory. That's right, he didn't. But God the Father granted him glory. Philippians 2 Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That was the motivation. That was the future that Jesus, even at this time from John 7, that's what he was facing. Listen to what it said, because Jesus did that, verse 9. Of Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted Jesus and has bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is our job as humans, it is our job as preachers that we are pointing to the glory of Christ, the exaltation of Christ that then brings glory to God the Father. There is always a temptation. And we talk about this every now and then in the church. We're, we're just as pastors, we, we, we ask you to pray for us about these things. Because the word says that we're going to give an account. That's a big account that we give for what we say. And there's always this temptation for preachers and teachers because it's such a public, visible role that we have. And it's easy that you, have all, that you can get a lot of, 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 of praise sometimes from people. It's easy to, to, to let that get to, into your heart to assign it more value than it should have. And sometimes the temptation is for the preacher or the teacher to use God's word as a means to demonstrate their speaking skills. Or, or for the preacher or teacher to find satisfaction and even maybe a little bit of adulation in hearing people talk about how good the sermon was. See, the heart of a preacher or teacher should be, again, my teaching is not mine, but 
but His who sent me. And finds joy not in the praise of His skill, but in the praise of His Savior. You know, I greatly appreciate how many of you comment on sermons. It, it, it's a really, I've just not been around many Christians that do. You don't just go, oh man, that was so good, or yeah, or you talk about specific ways that God encouraged you. That makes a pastor's heart and a preacher's heart just, just so grateful. To talk about what he heard, what you heard from the Lord in that. How it opened your heart, how it deepened your affection, how it strengthened your faith, how it, how, it, how it addressed some of the doubts you were having. And you talk about it like God did that, because it is God's Word. That's just a wonderful way to encourage a preacher or a teacher or a pastor. You don't praise us, you praise the God from whom you heard. And so, just pray that we would always, our heart would always be to be true to the Word. One of the dangers is when people, when you hear praise, you, you either assign it too much value, or you, or, and it's the same thing with criticism. It, both those things can really mess you up. And it takes a heart because there is a vulnerability in preaching. Pray that we would always be true to the Word, and true to preaching what is here. That we could faithfully say, this, this is not mine, this is His who sent me. And that that's what we're offering to you week after week. And that brings us to the last aspect of Jesus' teaching, number four. There's the danger in Jesus' teaching. The danger in Jesus' teaching. Verses 19 through 24. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The danger in Jesus' teaching is making false judgments. That's what he's talking about here. Because we misunderstand the greater purpose. And what Jesus does here, he calls Moses kind of to his aid. Verse 19. Jesus' first point there in verse 19 is that they were all seeking to kill him in defiance of the very law that they all claimed to be following. Moses gave you the, the law, yet none of you keep it because you're trying to kill me. In verse 21, Jesus said, I did one work and you marvel at it. Marvel here is used, isn't necessarily a positive, like, oh, that's so great, marveling. It's like they were impressed with it and thoughtful and thought it was, it was, it was, it was like, what in the world did just happen here? What did Jesus dare do here? Well, what was the one work that he did? He healed a man on the Sabbath earlier in his ministry, and now they are trying to kill him for that. And Jesus points out the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of circumcising someone on the Sabbath while condemning him for healing a man on the Sabbath. He's saying, you've got no clue about the law of God. The Jewish religious leaders so misunderstood the law given to them through Moses that they were trying to kill Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. That's just this huge inconsistency. 
This is why Jesus had such harsh things to say about the Jewish religious leaders in his day. They judged by appearance instead of by what was true. They used the law to measure people and in order to keep people in line. They used the law to hammer people, to keep them in their place. They used the law to set themselves apart. They developed a law that they could keep, but tried to make sure that nobody else could. They didn't see the law as life and goodness. They didn't understand that the summary of the law was love. Love for God and love for others. This is why Jesus pronounced a series of what we call the woes. Woes against the religious leaders. Here's what he said. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He accuses in another woe to the religious leaders. Jesus said, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jesus calls them blind guides. He says, you're so twisted, you so don't understand that you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. He says, you guys, you're clean on the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You project an image that you're good, but what's going on inside is evil. You're like whitewashed tombs, Jesus said, which outwardly appear to be beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus also said, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They weren't judging rightly. This was the issue. They didn't understand the nature and purpose of the law. And they missed the more important issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's why we call them Pharisees. People who twist the law because they think by keeping this law, they somehow or another gives them standing. And by somehow or another, it gives them some kind of claim on God. Eugene Peterson has a wonderful illustration of this I want to share with you. He said, imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture, win- picture window. And overlook- this picture window overlooks this incredible view across this expansive water with these incredible mountains rising 14,000, 15,000 feet. At the top, you can see snow. And you, from your, your house and through that window, you can see this incredible, this incredible vista. You see the rocks and the trees and the color that the sunset makes. And you see when the leaves turn in the fall. And daily in your house, you, you walk by and you just stop and you're in awe of what you're seeing. But one afternoon you walk by and you notice a bird made a deposit on the window. So, you go and you get some glass cleaner, you get a bucket of water, you get a towel and you clean it. Well, a couple days later, rainstorm leaves that window that's streaked again and the bucket comes out again. 
Another day you have visitors come and their little ones have, have fingers that leave prints all over the window. So out come the bucket again. You're cleaning the window. You're very concerned about how the window is going to be messed up next. The sponge marks that's going to be out. You're, you're so proud of that window. It's such a large window. But it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision, distracting from the beauty, so to say. And so keeping that window clean becomes an obsession. You accumulate different kinds of ladders, different kinds of buckets, different kinds of squeegees. And when you talk to someone, you're talking about all the cleaning things and cleaning principles and cleaning tools that you have. You have the cleanest window on the continent, but it's been years since you've actually looked at the mountains. Eugene Peterson says you become a Pharisee. This is the danger in Jesus' teaching that we miss this. We miss the life or the details. We don't understand the heart of what God calls us to. We don't understand the joy and life His will and way brings to us. We just start talking about the details of, of the things we do and don't do. We become more intent on the rules, more intent on the laws, instead of the one they point us to. And after a while, it's just so much easier to talk about all the ways we keep the law or don't keep the law or all the things that we, that we do or don't do than we are talking about the one that we've been called to love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May the Lord keep us from ever giving way to thinking or living in that kind of way. Judging so poorly. Judging so inaccurately. It's just really sad that we do not understand how much that just kills us. We're judging by appearance instead of judging with right judgment. May the Lord help us in all these ways. From this passage, we once again see that Jesus has the words of life and how grateful we are to Jesus for all He has said and all He has done. Let's pray.